You're listening to Universal Learning with me, Saj Mohammed. In this series, I'll be talking to professionals inside and outside education, as well as parents, carers, and learners themselves about their experiences of inclusive practice. I'm on a mission to discover as much as possible about inclusion because I've been a learning support practitioner for over six years. And I've come to realize that many of the adjustments we make for students with additional needs could benefit all learners. For example, making things easy to read helps dyslexic students, while using clear language can benefit autistic learners. So, shouldn't inclusive practice be part of our normal routine when planning teaching, learning and assessment. In an ideal world, I'd like educators to stop thinking about inclusive practices as another chore to be added to an ever-expanding workload. In actual fact, I believe that inclusive practice can ultimately make life easier by making learning more accessible for all of our students. In this first edition of Universal Learning, I'm talking to Nicola Beldham, an inclusion specialist who, like me, works in further education with post-16 learners. But what she has to say about inclusion, I think, is relevant to all phases of education in some way. So this is my first ever foray into podcasting, which means I'll probably make one or two mistakes as I learn. But that's no bad thing, albeit I'll be making these mistakes in public. Any feedback that you have after listening would be gratefully received. And you can get in touch via our website, universallearning.education. In the course of the interview, Nicola mentions the Ideas Room. And this is a wonderful online space started during the first lockdown, where I first met Nicola. It was started by Lou Mycroft and Steph Wilkinson as part of their Joy FE initiative and is based on the work of Nancy Klein, who came up with the idea of the thinking environment. In a future edition, I hope to talk more about the concept of the thinking environment, as I think it's a very powerful way to explore ideas in a non-competitive way. We also talk about the effect of the pandemic on the learning environment in colleges which have been noticeably quieter than normal. This has benefited many students with sensory issues, and it's really highlighted for me how distressing the built environment in many settings can be in normal times for these learners. Another aspect of our conversation that really made me think was how our good intentions may lead to hellish outcomes for many autistic learners. If you finish your timetabled session 15 minutes early, you may think that you're doing your students a favour. But for many autistic learners, they would much prefer to keep to a consistent routine and find themselves at a loss when sessions end earlier than expected. Now, this interview was recorded using Zoom and the quality is not the best. However, you can read a transcript of this episode on our website, universallearning.education, where you can also find links relating to each episode. 
to help you discover how you can put inclusion into practice for all of your learners. I should also mention that in a future episode, I am planning to answer any questions that listeners might have about inclusion. So do feel free to get in touch via universallearning.education. One thing that really came across during my talk with Nicola was how passionate she is about ensuring the best outcomes for the students she works with. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. My name is Nicola Beldham. Um, my, my current title is Autism and Inclusive Practice Specialist. Um, so I work in further education. Um, consider myself to be a neurotypical version of an autism specialist and I've worked with autistic learners for a very long time but now I'm branching out into other neurodiversities as well. How did you um, end up working in education and, and particularly uh, specialising in autism? Gosh um, well I have to go back a long way back to the 1990s well when I was <laughs> when I was um, doing my A-levels. Um, I basically didn't do very well at my A-levels and I had to choose um, a degree that basically had the entry requirements for. And there was one called human, Applied Human Communication at Manchester Met that caught my eye. Um, and I got onto that and then through that um, and through summer jobs, I discovered autism. So that was back in 1996, I think. Um, oh no, graduated in 96, so it was before then. Um, so yeah, discovered autism through working in play schemes and things like that, like um, play schemes that were aimed at children with, with various disabilities. And I was just fascinated by autism at that point. Um, and then through my degree, I <clears throat> learned more and more about it. Now, at the point I was wanting to go um, into speech therapy, um, but I did my, my dissertation um, on autism and self-concept. Um, and then I applied for a speech therapy assistant job and didn't get it. And then um, basically I got a call afterwards saying, well, um, we work with these twin boys with autism. Would you be interested in working with them in the family, sort of helping to develop their language and um, behavior and coping skills and so on? And of course I jumped to that um, and then worked with them for a year and then relocated to the Northeast and um, Basically, I was looking for autism-related jobs, and I ended up working in a, a specialist education provider, like residential college. So I, I worked like running shifts, coordinating like um, leisure activities and independence and things like that. And then through them, I went over to an, the educational side and started working in the local colleges. So basically, working with the, the students who were going to be going into off to the local colleges, Newcastle College, Sunderland College and so on to do the GCSEs and A-levels and I was kind of the link, I was the sector college liaison um, and basically that I got, that was, that's, that's where the inclusive practice bit really started I guess um, and then just climbed, climbed the ladder there, um, more, more teaching and, and more management side. Um, yeah, so it was just, it's kind of almost always been that way, I guess, but started off with preschool children and then it became further education just because I was looking for autism jobs and that's the first thing that I, first thing that I found. Um, and yeah, been hooked ever since. Um, and now working sort of back in the Midlands, um, this, this job was advertised as, as a sort of specialist in autism and behavior. And then because I've sort of shown such a commitment to raising good practice, like include, include, sorry, improving inclusive practice across college, the roles kind of evolved into 
less one-to-one -one work, but more about let's teach the teachers how to, to do it. So it's not just me working one-to-one -one with somebody with autism in an office, it's, it's much more to do with, well, the whole college should be inclusive, which is what I believe in um, anyway. So I still do some one-to-one -one stuff, but not, not as much. So yeah, it's just, I've just always loved it. And it's just evolved quite naturally that way, really. Um, yeah, just through that passion for autism. And then now because it's more inclusive practice, I'm, I'm realizing that particularly people with ADHD are getting a bit of a raw deal. <coughs> um, and so I'm making much committed to sort of understanding more about that so that, that they get more of a sort of inclusive um, education. And then, um, learning about all the other neurodiversities along the way as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, always been yeah. that way. <laughs> so you sort of really sort of started your career as an autism sort of specialist and you're now moving into other areas around neurodiversity. Yeah. What was it about autism in particular, do you think, that uh, attracted you to working with um, autistic learners? Well, I've always been fascinated by different ways of thinking. So originally, when I was looking for... Um, degrees I wanted to go into criminology or something like that because it was basically I wanted to understand how somebody else's brain works in a different way um, and the reasons why and trying to sort of really understand what makes people tick so I've always had the fascination with that and also a really strong sense of fairness as well I've got quite a diverse family so I'm really passionate about um, sort of racism and like uh, sexuality and all sorts of things I've got quite a really diverse family so I've always sort of had a strong sense of fairness and understanding people who are different but then autism really got me hooked and it was it was a young boy at one of the play schemes who kept he was using echolalic language when he was playing a game and he was this he was saying the sausages are burning the sausages are burning and I was thinking well the game is nothing to do with sausages so I was trying to sort of connect why why he was saying that in that context and, and just trying to analyze it we never I never actually knew the real answer but I presumed it was because it was a sense of panic and it was that he was labeling the feeling of panic during the game when actually there'd been a, a panic situation at home when sausages really were, were burning. So I, I never I kind of guessed that. And then through studying autism through my, uh, through my degree and my dissertation, and then I went on to do my master's a few years ago as well. I've kind of just kind of done a bit, learned a bit, done a bit, learned a bit. And, and then each time when I've studied things, I've gone, oh, actually, I was right about that. So when I look back at my, my degree, that my first degree that I did, which was about autism, reading back through that, I think, actually, I had very little experience at that time. But actually, I think my perceptions were actually pretty accurate based on what I know now. So I think I've just, I'm sort of quite in tune to it, I think. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, obviously, I'm, I don't know if I'm always right, because I'm a strong believer that if you're not autistic, you can't truly be a specialist in it. But I feel like I've got that connection and I can, I'm in tune and I, and I sort of have helped learners to understand themselves quite a lot. But I've also spent an awful lot of time listening to their experiences. For example, when I used to work night shifts and the, um, and there's residents would be sort of staying up late to the have sleeping patterns that were all over the place and we just spend time just sitting and, and chatting about it and I learned so much about what autism really was through young adults who who were, were autistic before then I worked with preschool children who weren't able to tell me <laughs> so yeah so it's been working with our young adults and learning from them that's been can just help me learn that's interesting. Yeah. yeah keep learning along the way 
You mentioned um, um, echo echo lalic language. The young echo lalic, yeah, echo lalic yeah. language. So yeah. for those who don't know, what is echo lalic <clears throat> language? It's kind of using language, but it's kind of out of. It appears to be out of context, or it, it's referred to like as a parrot fashion or something. So it's basically when we're engaging with each other now, it's a to and fro. I'm talking, you're responding, you're saying what, I, and we're responding to each other. Whereas echo lalic is kind of slightly detached from that, and you don't. So it seems like words are used out of context um, and it's like a, maybe a repeated phrase, but there's, I believe there's, a, there's always a meaning behind that phrase. Um, so it, it could be something to do with their, their interest in, in trains or Thomas the Tank Engine or whatever. Um, but it's, yeah, it's using language, but there's not a tr sort of true to and fro and the depth of the meaning of what language is all about what communication is really, what what what, it, what communication is to you and I, to you and I, but Macaulaylic um, is different to that. Um, and yeah, if you, some people, some autistic people use Macaulaylic language a lot. Other people just use it occasionally. Some people don't use it at all. Yeah, but it's kind of repeating a phrase back, kind of out, apparently out of context. Yeah, but in yeah. that, but in that case, the the the. What is he saying? The sausages are burning. Yeah. So, they, so the, the the child there was sort of expressing their emotional state through that. Language. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I'll never truly know, yeah. but I, that's what I believe, uh, and that's. So I, I think that I could, if I'd asked the parents about it and find out, well, why did why does it say this? Did you ever have a situation where the sausages are burning? Um, I think I probably would have been right about that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you also mentioned, you know, talking to young young adults as well, and um, for for people who um, who aren't experts on autism but may have read 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 a little about the subject, they may have read about things like theory of mind and yeah, autistic people not um, having necessarily um, an awareness of other people's emotions or or an understanding of their own emotions. First of all, do you think that's 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 um, um, an accurate way of thinking about it? And when it came to the to the to the young people that you that you were talking to, yeah, do you say that they had uh, agency and, and self awareness about being autistic? It depends very much on the person and their level of intellectual ability. That it, it's just you couldn't say that that's like one size fits all thing at all. Um, so I'm working with a young man at the moment where his level of his, like understanding of his own emotions and other people's emotions is very, very basic. So it might, you know, it's no sort of happy, sad, angry, worried, but trying to understand more than that and recognising those feelings in himself and other people is a challenge that I don't think is ever going to get. But I think that's partly also due to a learning difficulty as well. Whereas with other people who are um, more... Um, in tune and in, or intensely in tune with their own emotions and other people's but their difference might be that they're not sure how to express it so it might be that they don't have kind of can't intuitively offer a hug at the right time for somebody else to feel comfortable with that hug or um or to be able to sort of say the right thing so there's all those social rules that come with how do you respond to somebody's emotions and i think there's a lot of the barrier a lot of the time not just the ability to recognize the emotion so in, in some people it is that yes they don't 
they don't recognize their own emotions they don't they can't lay, give it the right label so knowing that that weird sort of <coughs> churning in your tummy is might be anxiety you have to kind of label it so 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 it might be i've got tummy ache okay are you worried about anything um maybe well are you how do you feel about this 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 not happy okay you are worried about this 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 that is making your tummy feel funny <coughs> that is a sign that you are feeling worried so it's about labeling all of those different feelings for, for some people but then for others it's much more <clears throat> less of hyper aware of their own feelings and needs and and, and i think once with with certain people once they have that intellectual ability to compare themselves to somebody else that's when you get a lot more sort of anxiety and depression as well associated with autism because it's it's like well <clears throat> i'm they're finding that easy i'm finding it difficult and making being able to make that comparison that and will i ever be able to do that this that and the other that's quite <clears throat> that can get a lot of people down but then i think your, your personality interacts with that as well because some people are quite sort of you might get a naturally sort of arrogant person who's like i don't care if i'm different to everybody else or a quite an eccentric person or um uh, extroverted person who's just like yeah this is me that's absolutely fine and you, when you add that to autism as well, I think you've got that you've got that mix. Whereas you get somebody who's much more introverted and naturally more anxious, then that affects somebody's ability to initiate a conversation or respond to somebody's feelings because there's that there's more awkwardness, more awareness of their awkwardness or whatever. So it's a, you can't possibly say right autism is this 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 for this this this. It's it, there's too many variables. So it's, it's about treating each person individually. And, and it, but you do kind of make connections and go, well, this is a little bit like when I was working with so-and-so. So you have, there's lots of common themes. Yeah, stacks of common themes, but everybody's individual. So this is why people talk about the spectrum because there's really no, you know, one clear fixed model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, there's the, the, the traits that you have to have a diagnosis, but then some people have those to a great extent, some, other, some only have those to a smaller extent. So it's a bit like a sort of pick and mix. These are the key things, but you've got loads of those ones and you've got just a few of those ones and, and a peaky profile uh, also as well. So you've, you're going to be perhaps more advanced for your, your years in some areas, but then or behind in terms of sort of social skills and empathy apparently um <clears throat> in other um in other areas so it's a yeah it's a whole mixture um yeah. and you don't get and it's not a linear profile it's not like the pro uh, a sort of spectrum of less able more um more able it that's gone that idea was gone <laughs> some people still believe that that, that like high functioning autism low functioning autism that is that's gone now <laughs> it's quite and a lot of autistic people find that quite offensive um because it disguises the, it's disrespects the fact that uh so what we would call a high functioning autistic person is having to work really hard to kind of mask a lot of their difficulties they might have or working really hard to overcome things and 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 by saying oh you're you don't look very autistic you must be really high functioning that kind of devalues all of those efforts that they've had to put into kind of reach a certain level of social normality <laughs> yeah leads nicely on to, to our next question actually because i was going to ask about women uh, with autism and there seems to be a growing uh, awareness as the years go on that uh, there are uh, women who um, who um, are not being diagnosed with autism early in life mm. and um, 
it seems that they're um, finding ways to uh, mask the mask um, the aspects of autism um, that are uh, individual to them, um, and so they're not getting recognised. Mm. So, what's what's your um, what's your sort of experience of, of working with learners who maybe haven't been um, recognised as being on the spectrum up until now? Yeah, you get to quite a few people with a, a late diagnosis. Um, so work, I'm working with sort of 16 year olds upwards at the moment and um, make, well, not regularly, but quite often I'm meeting people who are just going through the diagnostic process now. So they haven't had exam access arrangements. They haven't had all the other sort of reasonable adjustments that they might have they've had lots of mental health input, for example, um, because they've been struggling and they've had a lot of anxieties and things. But yeah, it's taken this long for them to get a diagnosis. But for a long, long time, it was sort of recognised that um, one in four, um, so there was four times as many males with autism than there were females. So when I, I used to run an autism provision for um, quite a few years up in the northeast, and and we would have this, that ratio of males to females. But the female students that we had tended to have more complex challenges, and, and you would see that in their behaviour as well. So we would... We, we kind of had the idea at the time that that autistic girls were sort of more challenging than than autistic boys but I believe now now that we know more about the diagnosis of girls that they kind of hit the threshold of being recognized because their needs were so more complicated and because their behavior became more ch challenging as a result of that then they were more likely to get the diagnosis but it was all of those ones that didn't reach that point that weren't getting weren't getting diagnosed before um so I mean that's probably what 10 years ago or something like that where we had that that viewpoint whereas now the numbers are evening out a, a lot more and you do find talk to sort of parents uh, like talk to mums about their support needs of their children and think oh actually, I think I might be autistic or oh, I'm going through a diagnosis as well because they're starting to think okay well I do this that of these things that my son or daughter does so yeah a lot more women are getting diagnosed now and it's it's starting to balance out a lot more and also recognizing that the the diagnostic criteria for males isn't necessarily going to be exactly the same for the diagnostic criteria for females um so yeah i'm, I'm still learning about that as well um like kind of catching up a little bit with with that um thinking as well yeah. um, but i can definitely see it happening but i um I couldn't tell you exactly how the female sort of profile of autism is different exactly. So what has changed? Is it that um, settings are getting better at spotting um, um, these traits younger or is it that uh, parents are becoming more aware um, of autism? You know, what do you think is 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 um, helping you know, these uh, young, younger women to be recognised as having autism now oh, that they weren't years ago? A mixture of all of those things, I think. Um, yeah, anything that's, there's more, there's more positive things on the telly, there's, there's more, um, there's more to read about it, there's more people talking about it, there's just more opportunity for somebody to go, ah, that sounds like me, whereas be before it wasn't as openly discussed, I mean, the, the views of disability have changed quite rapidly over the last sort of 20 years or so um, and it's much more open openly talked about much more visible now so I just think there's there's more chances of somebody 
hearing the right information um, and therefore more doctors understand it. Not, not enough yet, um, more teachers understand it. And again, not enough yet, but um, so there's again more and more chances of somebody um, getting picked up. It's interesting that you say um, not enough teachers uh, still understand it. So, you know, thinking, of, thinking about the years that you've been working in the field now, I mean, I'm hoping there's been some progress in, in greater awareness among teachers of SEND issues. What's, what's your experience been? Well, I did a little bit of um, sort of cover teaching on a um, teaching qualification just uh, a couple of years ago. And I was surprised how little content there was about special educational needs on the qualification. And, and also talking to, I've got loads of teachers in my family and, and they don't, they've had very little preparation. Um, so they're expected to teach say 30 primary school children with two or three autistic children in that group with very little preparation about how to meet their needs. And that just doesn't, <laughs> just does not work. So I think, yeah, there's, there's, very, there's not, enough, not enough training and it's not enough training done in the right way as well. So I think a lot of a lot of training and awareness is done to do with oh they can't do this they can't do that this is really difficult you're going to have this problem with behaviour and there's not enough focus on well actually autism is a different way of thinking and if you get these little bits right then well not little bits if you get these important bits right then you're going to be able to bring out the strengths and these are the kind of strengths to look out for so it's not trying to get stuck you know the square peg round hole sort of situation where you're trying to force everybody to be normal and hit the normal the kind of this this sort of standard um developmental criteria and all that kind of thing autistic learners develop a different pace in different different ways and it's not necessarily the wrong way it's in a lot of ways in lots of situations it's it's just a different way um, but you've got to get those reasonable adjustments and that inclusive practice right in the first place, otherwise you're never going to see the strengths. So if you don't recognise the sensory needs, for example, you, you're going to be dealing with the, fighting the battle of the, <clears throat> what that creates instead of actually being able to work to the strengths, which might be a fantastic attention to detail or memory for certain things, and that deeper interest, deeper knowledge rather than broader knowledge of things and, and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the right amount of training and the right type of training. I just, it still isn't there yet, yeah. um, I believe. I want, to, I want to talk a little bit more in a while about, um, you know, the kinds of um, approaches that, that, that um, teaching staff can take to making learning more inclusive um, for, all, for all learners, really. Um, but um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, the, this idea of the deficit model, so the so the idea that the idea that um, there's something missing, if you like, with learners, there's something or something wrong with learners. Mm. So, do you think that, that that kind of that kind of deficit model, when looking at learners with additional needs, do you think that really still holds sway too much? Oh yeah, yeah, certainly, um, especially with um, behaviour. So, for example, um, somebody with ADHD is too often still seen as naughty, disruptive, disrespectful, bad attitude, no respect for authority, that kind of thing, without looking at the underlying reasons why you might see those kinds of behaviours. Somebody with autism is seen as blunt, rude, aloof, 
um, without again seeing that actually they're being blunt because that um, because autistic communication is just more more direct. Just say it as it can be. Just more say it as it is. And and when we analyse the typical our typical communication. There's, a, there's a something the amazing sort of thing that I watch follow on Twitter and so on called British, um, is it called British Problems or something? Um, and it's basically really ridiculous things that typically British people do and um, how, how we might give false compliments or we can't give a direct answer or we sort of we just tiptoe around a real issue all of the time, whereas an autistic person is much more to the point. But because we're not used to hearing that, it's seen as wrong and blunt and rude and disrespectful but actually and people take that really personally but actually no, just look at the, the communication that's being just look at the message that's being take the words literally and respond to that message not our expectation that we have to flower things up all the time so for example I, a tutor gave me an example the other day um oh so and so he messaged me saying um why why didn't you reply to my email and so I'm trying to say from the learner's point of view, they genuinely want to know the answer of why didn't you reply to the email? But we might go, <clears throat> I, I, sorry, I haven't heard from you yet. You must be really busy. Would you be able to get back in touch with me <laughs> soon or that? So we, we would kind of flower it all up, but actually the autistic person just wants to get straight to the point. And that seems wrong, but actually sometimes there's a beauty in that. Sometimes that's just what we need and it's just, efficient <laughs> these, these are sort of cult cultural factors as well aren't they because, yeah completely um, say you know the dutch are, are quite renowned for being very very blunt and very very direct you know so if you put on weight since the last time you've seen somebody <laughs> you know, the first thing that will come out of a dutch person's mouth might be you've 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 put on a lot of weight since last time i saw you you know yeah but that's a normal part of the culture so yes yeah. yeah it's not something to uh to, to, to worry about too much in that context mm. yeah it is a, it is a cultural yeah it's a cultural difference but there are reasons behind some more sort of scientific reasons as to why those things happen um because of the difference of understanding social norms and so on and i was thinking about it this morning before we had our, our chat i was thinking well why those sort of those neurotypical people kind of have almost like this secret code to all this social stuff that's been hidden from autistic people so when i'm doing training as give examples of things like when you hold a door open for somebody so i used to work at a, at, in a college where there was a really really long corridor and it was broken up with doorways along the way um and i feel like i know if there's somebody walking behind me i feel like i know whether i should hold the door open or not if they're a certain distance away i'll not bother but if they if they're close, obviously I will hold the door open for them. But if but there's a there's a little awkward distance where you think should I hold the door open or not, and you'll you'll have an awkward giggle. But <clears throat> so neurotypical people have that that access to that sort of hidden code of what at what distance should I hold that door open? Um, but then autistic people haven't been given that information. Their their brain doesn't access that information. So. It, but there's so many, there's thousands and thousands of social rules like that, that we just, you or I just know instinctively that an autistic person has to sort of learn all of these things and apply them to different settings and go, okay, well, that rule will work there, but it might not work there. So you know, to sort of learn from scratch all the time, it's just, yeah. 
Um, and, you know, on, on that sort of topic of culture as well, people with autism, you know, may feel, you know, in, in society, you know, fitting in, if you like, with neurotypical people to be difficult. So they may seek out communities of, of, of people in a similar situation to them. So, and, and you know, the internet has obviously um, helped to sort of bring people together. So in your experience, do you find that, um, you know, a lot of autistic young people are, um, are connecting with other um, sort of neurodiverse uh, young people online and kind of forming their own cultures? I think through gaming, yes. So when, um, when I was in a, a, another role, um, when I sort of ran this autism provision, I would bring new students to come have a look around and see the like the feel of the place and so on. And the amount of times the students knew each other's gaming tags before they they'd met the person. And so you're on Xbox, yeah, I'm on Xbox. What's your gaming tag? Oh, and they've turned out they've been playing against each other before they've actually like met each other. Um, and that that was amazing for seeing that those connections building and the importance of feeling like you fit in, and the amount of people that would come to that that college it was a sort of autism unit but unit is, is a weird phrase it wasn't separate from everybody else it was just a safe place um and with an edu curriculum and so on that went with it but um it, the amount of people that kind of felt like they were home they felt like they belonged they felt like they fit in and they could be themselves and they they could do the rocking in the corner if they wanted to they could hum and run up and down if they wanted to that was fine that was where everybody understood it and that everybody got it and that was absolutely fine whereas they might have to pretend to be a little bit different when they went into the main part of the college i'm trying to kind of recreate a version of that now in my current role which i'm not able to do it in a big as big a scale but um before lockdown, I used to have used to like run a lunchtime group because um, I knew lots of autistic learners around college, but they didn't know each other, and they were all sort of isolated in their own ways. And I felt if I if I could just connect that one with that one, <laughs> it was like a bit of a matchmaking thing. I I know that they would have something in common. I know they would have those connections. I know they would be able to build some friendship from that. Um, and it was taking a long time to build up, but um, we ended up having a lunchtime group. But not many learners came to it. Um, when we, when we sort of we started a project on sensory overload and that was a drive to get more students involved and then they were able to sort of see um oh actually yes there's, there's something in this um and they would attend once a week and we would have we could have lunch there we could we would do this social battery sort of exercise at the beginning of each sort of lunchtime activity um and you basically say, if, I'm, if you're feeling red today, then you're just going to use this time and space to just sort of zone out, um, listen to your music, get your games out, whatever. But if you were sort of feeling orange or green, then you might be in a position to have a bit of a chat, play a game with somebody else or um, help somebody else through a problem. So it was just like, how are you feeling today? OK, what are we going to use this time for? And we didn't all have to use it the same, same in, the, in the same way. But now I'm doing that online. Uh, and it's grown into something a little bit like what I wanted to create in the first place, which is um, so we're doing it through teams. So we have twice weekly meetings. One of them, as, as suggested by the learners, one of them um, to do with uh, supporting each other. Like so each person brings something like the ideas rooms that we kind of know about. But each person um, brings something they want a bit of help with or a suggestion or something. And we talk through that. But then on another day of the week, it's much more random conversation where the aim is about 
building connections and friendships and you can see people's humor connecting and the amount of times where you somebody will go on about something and then another learner goes oh no way I like that as well and that's where I just back off and just let them just bond and have a laugh and and one of the learners has started to call it that it's it's like our family it's she's referred to it like that now and um this on the team's channels there's lots of information to do with friendship social skills small talk managing emotions so there's lots of sort of learning opportunities there that they can interact with throughout the week we have a random question of the week so i've got an autistic member of staff who helps me organize it as well so he um he's much better at getting the learners involved in conversations and banter than than i am because i'm i use the sort of neurotypical questions like what are you doing at the weekend and all that kind of thing which doesn't spark their interest as much as he can with random questions about uh, films and so on um so it's it's an online community that i've managed to create and turn it into an educational thing as well and also i draw students into it when i feel like they're ready to engage in that but you also but i'm also still doing a little bit of matchmaking in there as well so i feel like there are some learners where i feel like they're not quite going to connect with the learners over there currently so they can access another part of it um uh, one learner was banned from it because she wasn't ready to, to use it in the positive <laughs> way that it was aimed at. Um, but I'm, I'm really sort of proud of it and it's it's growing and growing and I feel like they have got a sense of this is where I, I belong, I fit in, people understand me, I can be myself and that's really important and I would love to expand that so that they feel that in everyday life post-covid as well um yeah so yeah the online community things is i, I don't the gaming is a, is a big part of it but i don't know how safe that is um can be safe for plenty of people but then there are other people who are vulnerable whereas the group that i'm running i can keep an eye on things if i need to so for example where there was a a chat that we're having one day and i could just sense something wasn't quite right for one of the young people so i was able to message him afterwards so I can kind of, without interfering at the time, I can just judge how people are getting on and, and then I contact him afterwards and he wasn't okay and then we're able to put the right safeguarding measures in place and so on. Um, so it's a kind of monitored thing, but then friendships are developing out of that and they can take that friendship wherever they, wherever they want. It's just, I kind of helped to get it started <laughs> a little bit. That sounds like that's worked brilliantly. Yeah, it is. It is. It's got a long way to go. I want much more, let's say more, many more learners to be in. I think I've only got 13 or 14 or something like that at the moment. So there's masses of potential for more people. But um, the more people I get, the more likely they are to find somebody else in that group that they connect with. So it's going to be, so people are going to get more and more out of it. Yeah. yeah. Overall, um, how would you say that your neurodiverse learners have been sort of coping with with the, the changes really, you know, so they've gone from um, having quite a social environment in, in college to uh, being at home a lot now and accessing the learning online. So what's, what's, the, what's your experience mm. been like? It's been quite a mixture. To be honest, the beginning of the academic year um, was well in the summer just before that I was able to start showing people around doing transition visits and so on and having a look around the college 
and I felt at the time that COVID was actually making that a lot easier <laughs> once we were allowed back in the building. I was able to say, well, we've now got one-way systems in place, which were a huge barrier before. So the college felt quite overwhelming for several autistic learners or anxious learners um, because there were huge, great social spaces. The, there was a lot of hustle and bustle in the corridors and the stairways and so on. So I was then able to say when showing people around, right, well, normally this would have been a really busy area with random things going on, loads of music and so on. But actually, thanks to COVID, that isn't going to be in use. And it's, so that it, was at, it's able, it was able to make the college more accessible. And I would say, well, this corridor, normally there'd be a lot of hustle, hustle and bustle, but now we've got a one-way system, so we've got to keep your distance. So those students that were scared of going into a busy space or scared of being knocked, scared of being judged because there was too many people, again, it took away a lot of those pressures um, and then knew that they could safely walk down the corridor without being knocked and somebody mucking about and so on, because it, it made the college so much calmer and quieter. So from that respect, um, that that was working really well then there happened to be lots of timetable changes so for example if a staff member got sick somebody else would then have to cover it or they'd have to suddenly have to be working from home it was those those issues were horrible to manage and you so you, those students were giving new information all the time about the timetable and that's yeah that's a real challenge that settled down a lot now since pretty much everything is at home um some students are doing okay with it. Some people absolutely hate it. Um, and they're not getting out of the house for any reason. So previously, if, if college was the only thing they would get out of the house for, now they're not getting the house, out of the house for anything. So they might be they might not have the confidence to go out independently, independently to go for a walk, walk the dog, whatever. So they're not getting out of the house at all, not even opening the windows um, or the curtains. Um, so it's a real mixture where some people have found that lack of people around them uh, a relief because actually there are less social pressures on us at the moment. I personally find that that's, I'm, I'm finding that quite relaxing, to be honest. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's a, again, it's a huge mixture. Initially, I was thinking that a lot of students were feeling like that, that they would be feeling like... Um, less social interaction. I haven't got to worry about this. I haven't got to worry about that. I haven't got to worry about the busy, like getting on the bus anymore. I haven't got to worry about being in a busy environment anymore. But I think as time's gone on, the disadvantages are sort of starting to be more present for a lot of people and they're more, more isolated. Um, we have got some students who are going into college, but um, only who meet the vulnerability criteria, but there are plenty who don't technically meet that criteria where you think actually you could do with a bit more a positive routine going on. Um, so yeah, um, I'd like the college to stay nice and quiet when we go back, when we go back in the building. I'd like the group sizes to stay small because I think all of those things were actually really quite good. And I also think now that we're working so much online, that's made staff think more flexibly about how they can teach. So I remember having a meeting with a student um, I think a year and a half ago or something, where she was really struggling with the whole college environment before COVID. And I had a conversation about her, but what would your perfect classroom situation actually be? Because she wants to learn, she wants to take the information in, but she couldn't cope with all the other sensory pressures and all sorts. Her perfect classroom environment was just sat in a black box with a screen like this, 
in a separate room so she could engage with the lesson just by looking at a screen with sensory sort of deprivation. There's nothing else going on around her. And I presented that to the tutors. <laughs> like, well, no, that's not going to happen. But now, actually, something like that probably could be created because they can't interact online. They, they can teach, well, not very well, but they might, they might be able to teach a group and also have somebody connected via a webcam. So I think there's potential to build on that to, to meet more students' sort of social needs. So people still, could still work from home if they could, if they weren't, if they were too anxious to get out of the out of home to come into college, they can still access it through Teams. So their attendance isn't affected, things like that. So I think there's a lot that we can build on, a lot of positives that we can build on from it. I think this is something that I've heard from a lot of um, people with um, all kinds of additional needs is that for years they've been requesting things like online lessons, you know, um, recording of lessons and it's no, we can't do that. But then yeah. as soon as the, um, the, the, the pandemic's happened, suddenly they're able to lay these things on for neurotypical <laughs> and they're like, oh. yeah. it's a little bit like, um, you know, homelessness, you know, so suddenly when the pandemic happened, you know, the government threw loads of money mm. at homelessness and rough sleeper started uh, being housed and uh, people were like, well, could you not have done this before? So mm. <laughs> I think a lot of people are, are feeling um, that, um, I guess with the pandemic, you know, um, what what wins can we kind of grab here? Like you say, mm. the, the quieter environment, um, you know, the smaller group sizes, I think a lot of um, learners have been really, really helpful. Mm. So, you know, yeah. can we make the best I of it? I know it's expensive it? though. Having been a curriculum manager before, I know how expensive it can it is to have small group sizes. So I don't think that's sustainable, but but the combination of somebody working at home and somebody working in college should be it's difficult to manage i wouldn't like to do it myself <laughs> i don't teach big groups of students anymore so I, that that's um I, I wouldn't fancy it to be honest but um so it might need still need some fine tuning but yeah it's i do think there's an awful lot that we can build on yeah so in your, in your current role, so you, you mentioned that you, um, you know, you've, you, moved, you moved away from teaching and more into kind of staff development. So, um, you know, how much of your role involves that, and 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 what kind of um, areas are you um, particularly uh, working on with the teaching staff to develop their their skills and, and knowledge? Okay, well, it started it in November, so it's still a little bit of a balancing act because there were still parts of. A previous role and a similar role that I've still got to, to do so I'm trying to make sure I don't take on too much in terms of the staff development so I'd love to just dive into that completely but it's not doable so I've still got a caseload of education and healthcare plan reviews to do and all sorts of other things um, so <clears throat> I'm still keeping the balance with that contact with learners through the group that I run because I feel like I've got to keep that going to make sure that my what I'm sharing with staff is actually right so I can run ideas past the students to to teach the staff so um I'd say probably maybe a day and a half to two days of the week is more to do with the staff development stuff so for example um I now deliver on the staff induction um which was really important so 
historically we would find that staff would get getting information about support plans and inclusive practice and so on a little bit later down the line they, they do an online um, assessment to do with the equality act and so on but it doesn't actually make you know what you need to do in practice um, so I now deliver on the staff induction which i've um, been doing uh, for a couple of months now um, so that means that as soon as a staff member as soon as a teaching staff member starts at the college they've been given information about these are your duties this is how we're going to help you follow them this is how you're going to get continued support where, where you get stuck and so on so the support that we offer i've got a um a lunchtime disability drop-in so every wednesday lunchtime it's an open discussion about disability i call it disability um so that staff can come along with a, a i don't know a scenario i'm really struggling to understand why so and so is doing this that and the other or I, how do i do this so they can come along but there are not many staff are engaging with that at the moment so i've got to but, but to be honest they've have had a lot on them <laughs> they have had a lot going on so <laughs> i'll let them off um I do an inclusive practice top tip in the principles roundup every week. So that's just really simple, straight to the point. Um, uh, but I present it as a, it's an, an image that I present. So it looks like a neurodiverse famous person, say Stephen Fry, Will I Am, or whatever, or um, I don't know, Jennifer Aniston. And it's, it looks like a classroom, and it's basically been a top tip has been written on the board, and it's in a speech bubble about them saying what needs to be done and why. But it's I try and keep it as short and concise as possible. So I do it like a top tip every every week. I'm doing um, well. We've just had an inset day, and special educational needs and disabilities was the main focus of that. So we did an ADHD and autism session within that as well. And um, so that was to do with here are some basics. How are you going to adapt your practice accordingly? How are you going to work to strengths as well as accommodate needs? Here's a lesson plan that you've been asked to cover this lesson, but you've noticed it's not going to work for your ADHD learner or the, your autistic learner. What do you need to, how do you need to adapt that session? Um, so there's going to be more of that stuff rolling out. I've got a neurodiversity week coming up. So I've got a programme of sessions on that. But I put together a package of all the things that I thought I could train people on and then sort of rolled out a bit of a survey to find out what people wanted and needed. And then from that, I decided I should focus on a basic inclusive practice. Let's just get some absolute basics so that classroom is like as accessible as possible without you being an expert on each of these different things. So that's been rolled out, but I broke it down to four stages. So because um, I realised that I'm trying to do like half hour slots um, so that it can fit in somebody's lunch hour or just before a session. So it wasn't too full on. Um, and then I thought, well, I can't cover everything inclusive practice for in half an hour. So I broke it down to a series. So the first one was about sort of well-being and sense of belonging and making sure that student feels like they belong in that group. So that it would cover things like how they might have been badly like mislabeled in the past, like a dyslexic person might be labeled as stupid, or an ADHD learner might be labeled as naughty. Um, so it's about, um, well, what do we do about that then? How do we behave differently so we can break that cycle? How do we talk about just differences positively so people feel like they, they sort of fit in how do we make sure that we don't highlight somebody's disability by going dyslexic person right you have the you have the blue paper so it stands out as being you're the dyslexic person <laughs> how do we do things that you can do for everybody that are really going to make a massive difference for those neurodiverse learners that need it but actually it's probably going to be quite helpful for everybody else anyway and then so we do the well-being and belonging bit first and then 
the next session is about teaching and learning. So about your activities, how you give instructions, make sure they're all inclusive, as inclusive as possible. And then there's going to assessment as well, looking at assessment methods. Do they truly assess what they're meant to? Do you really need to write an essay about something when actually it could have been a demonstration or something like that? And then the fourth one is more to do with online and, and just adapting, look, looking at the barriers that somebody might have with online learning and trying to find ways around around that but that I left that one till last because I felt like I had that's the way I had to I had to learn the most so I was trying to frantically grab loads of useful information and then turn that into a session um, but sharing that information along the way as well so I've, if I found something a really good resource we've got this virtual staff room on teams where I find, like regularly posting things on there this here's a good video here's a good checklist here's a good so it's accessible so there's lots of things that are going on um that are helping staff to feel more comfortable and i think yeah so it, it i can i can feel a change i can feel like more people are embracing it but i'm trying to make sure that to make it feel easy rather than um i think people if you've come from say if you've been working in industry i don't know you've been a bricklayer and now you're coming to teach a group of bricklayers Bricklaying is what you might know about. You're not necessarily going to go and know about dyslexia and ADHD and autism as well. And that can be quite daunting. So I'm trying to make sure that I remove some of that as much of it as I can. So it's about going, if you, if you, if you give your instructions like this to everybody, then actually your autistic learner is going to be really grateful for that. <laughs> and if you talk to all of your learners like this, your ADHD learner is going to be much more res responsive um, if you back your if you give your um, instructions with a demonstration, so one your dyslexic learner is going to be thankful for that. So it's just trying to give them some top tips and strategies that are going to work for everybody, so they haven't got to remember too much specialist stuff. But there are opportunities for people to build on that if they want to. So um, yeah. I think it's it's really, yeah it's really important to say I think that you know teaching staff shouldn't shouldn't uh, be expected to be um, in depth experts on every um, you know diagnosis going, okay. um, but um, you know there are some some sort of simple strategies and um, that you can use um, that help neurodiverse learners mm. but will will we'll benefit um, all learners and I, and I use this phrase uh, you know universal learning mm. to describe that idea. But, yeah. um, you know, very, very simple things like, you know, clear and ambiguous language, you know, yes, that will help with learners who are on the spectrum, but it will also help all learners because it will just yeah. make communication clearer. Yeah. So for um, sort of time, time, um, time pressed, um, you know, teaching staff, you know, what would you say are the kind of the, the really um quick wins you know that they can adopt quickly um to kind of improve the the, the learning for all their learners and, and you know neurotypical and neurodiverse mm. i think using plain english is really important to make so i do share information about the plain english campaign because that's so when you're emailing instructions to students working from home it's about having really clear bullet points or a checklist because initially at the beginning of lockdown student tutors were giving out instructions but hiding them all amongst all this sort of social chit chat about how you're doing how you I hope you're okay I hope you're keeping safe and then somewhere hidden in there were some instructions of a task they had to get done 
and I spend a lot of time translating emails for students. So if, like, if you just write, write the key information into some bullet points, that's really nice. And so not too wordy, just clear, concise sentences in bullet points. That's going to help your autistic learner, it's going to help your ADHD learner, it's going to help your dyslexic learner, and it's going to help everybody else have a clear understanding of what needs to get done. Um, using, yeah, verbally using quite short, concise um, is language as well. Um, so if you're having to process lots of information or if you're really stressed out, you short sentence with the instruction, a little bit of time to process it, another, another instruction to build on that, a little bit of time to process it. Have information um, provi provided in a few different ways. So have it written down, but also give it verbally, for example. So you're not, so it's not everybody's got to read it. You can listen to it or read it um, or see it as well. Diagrams and pictures and so on is fantastic. Be predictable so, and have a, have a structure and a plan and stick to that. Um, as much as you possibly can. And if you can't stick to it, explain why. So um, everything from room changes to timetables. And it, it really annoys me when you've got a, a nice sort of college structured timetable where lessons clearly start at a certain time and they end at a certain time. And then for some reason, tutors say, oh, we'll finish early today. Or, and you think they might, <laughs> they might think that they're doing everybody else a favor but actually that creates a lot of anxiety for those learners who are socially anxious, who don't know how they're going to fill this time. They, they, haven't, they don't know what time the next bus is going to be. It's just that creates so much stress by changing that timetable. So just have a structure, stick to that structure as much as you possibly can. Be predictable. So have a good sort of routine in your lessons. So, but to avoid it getting dull, there might be a section of your lesson that is open to something more flexible so it might be that we follow this plus so every every lesson we do this 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 then we do this then we have a more of a free time bit where we can go off piece a little bit but that's still within a structure it's still within a predictable sort of framework um and that's your your adhd learner is going to um, be thankful for that because they find change really difficult and things like being put on the spot that's a massive trigger for, for a lot of ADHD learners being called up in front of everybody else let's I need to have a meeting with you I need to come and do this outside in the corridor ah I'm on show in front of everybody can't cope with that so it's about giving advance notice of things if something different is going to happen let's let people know in advance build up to skills things like group work build up to them gradually um, by developing the skills that you might need to work in a group um, before actually throwing everybody in there, expecting them to be these fantastic social beings that could know how to turn, take and negotiate and compromise and all that. All of those skills that you need to a group, group tasks, maybe spend some time working on those first. Um, allocate roles in group tasks so that it's not too overwhelming. You can focus on a particular thing at a particular time. Allow anxious learners to share information in various different ways so choose to write it down on a post-it note choose to use microsoft teams chats um quizzes like i don't know kahoot or whatever so that you can you don't have to think of an answer say it out loud in front of everybody provide a range of different ways where people can provide their answers there's all sorts of things that you can 
do. Talk about difference and different abilities and things quite openly. Don't be afraid to say, well, I'm dyslexic or I find this difficult or this worries me. Um, so that it's a more comfortable space for people to, to talk about what they can and can't do easily. <coughs> there's all sorts of things, isn't there? But, um, but I don't think there's any of those that would go, that would actually cause a problem for everybody else. I don't say so it's not going to be lots of extra effort to, um, and it, I don't think those things would disadvantage anybody else that um, in the group. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's all sorts. I think it makes, and I think a lot of, I think a lot of these things can make everybody's life easier. So it's, it's, it's the learners you know, mm. benefiting from the routine, the structure. Um, but also is the, 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 the teacher planning, planning the lesson, you know, it, it takes away a lot of the, uh, the stress of, of planning and sequencing learning. If you've got a, a sort of a regular consistent way, yes, we'll have us, we'll begin with this activity, then we'll move on to this activity, but also, as you say, have that scope for some open-ended um, sort of learning as well to, to um, you know, to, to make things interesting and engaging, but um, yeah, you know, I think my mission with this podcast is really to encourage people to to see these adjustments. It's not a chore, but actually it opens up learning for for everybody and and, and makes for a more engaging experience. Mm. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. I don't want it to be a don't want it to be a chore. But I also think if if I ever hit a sort of um, more resistant member of staff uh, I'm, I've got the kind of an argument ready if it was your child or your grandchild your niece or nephew who who has a, a diagnosis or has these traits or whatever you would expect that people would be being inclusive you you wouldn't want them to just do it the same for everybody it, it wouldn't work so you would expect adaptations to be adaptations to be made you would expect their education to be as accessible as it for them as it is for everybody else so it's just you know that it's right <laughs> yeah um you, it's yeah it's it's got to be done do, do you find do you i mean just just finally do, do, do you find that um you know teaching staff who have neuro, neurodiverse um children that they care for themselves do you think that they just get it a lot more easily because they have that lived experience not necessarily not necessarily um because they don't necessarily know how those conditions affect a range of people they might know that one person with autism um and therefore have and haven't explored outside of that yet to to know how to work differently with, with different people um i i once managed to a tutor who had two autistic sons and I thought fantastic this it was like with the restructure going on and um he was because of that he met the criteria to keep his job and and then was moved to sort of work with the autistics um the group of autistic students and I thought oh fantastic it's going to be great but he really struggled um to engage the learners and everything um but then yeah, so it's, it's not necessarily the, the way in it the way in or the solution it might they might have more empathy and more desire to to do it perhaps but i yeah it's um 
but then I work with somebody at the moment who's incredibly passionate about getting it right for students and goes that like way above and beyond because he knows how much it matters. Um, but he's constantly relating back to his son. Like, so sensitive does this, my son also does that. Um, had it been a very different student to his son, I'd, would it have been as successful? I don't know. So uh, it's hard to say. It doesn't. It doesn't guarantee a better practice. You've still got to reflect. You've still got to consider all individuals separately. And, and yeah, there's this common traits to look out for and so on. But it's that one size fits all doesn't doesn't work. I see. <laughs> so, so, in, so in conclusion there's really there's always scope for people to kind of grow and develop their their practice when it comes to working with neurodiverse learners but also you know hopefully these things that um we, we learn we put into practice to benefit all of our learners as well i guess completely i always say i've been working with autistic people and learning like studying it and learning it and learning from autistic learners from from since the mid 90s and I'm and, and, and pretty much just that I haven't done much else outside of that um and I'm also, I'm still learning now so you you never know at all and uh, um and I want people to know that if they just go on an awareness course for half a day that's not it <laughs> you don't stop there you haven't now got autism or you, haven't got, or you haven't like learned autism you've got to keep learning all the time you've got to be open and you've got to sort of reflect all the time Did, is my language too complex am i speaking too fast am i bombarding with information am i you've you've got to keep checking yourself all the time and learning from what works and, and ask them am i um so for example one of the top tips i shared recently um, was to do with checking understanding because if you give loads loads and loads of information and then go okay do you understand yes do they truly understand possibly not so it's about finding other ways to check understanding so i was in a safeguarding meeting with somebody where they were given loads and loads and loads of really important information and i was thinking he's not he's not taking all of this in at all he's just nodding and being polite with this new person he doesn't know um, so at the end of the session, I said, well, OK, can you give us three key points that, that have just been given to you just now? Nothing. There was way too much. You couldn't pick out three key points. You couldn't. It was just too much. So it's about checking understanding. OK, so can you just explain to me what have I just told you? What can you remember? What, so how are you going to apply that? Give me some key information that we've just covered. What are the important bits you need to remember? So it's about checking that understanding. And then from that, you know, okay, am I talking too fast? Have I given too much information? Is my language too complex? So you've, yeah, you're constantly learning. You've got to keep learning. But then I'd expect any tutor to be doing that anyway. So this is just perhaps a little bit more detail. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, yeah. that's a good point to, to uh, conclude on that, uh, yeah that we, we keep on we keep on learning and that we're always learning about these things because uh it's uh, a constantly uh, ever-changing and expanding landscape i think we work we work in mm. so that's uh that's yeah as i said it's a good point to end on i think so thank you very much uh, nicola yeah for your, uh, welcome your knowledge and your experiences uh, today thanks to nicola 
for such a fascinating exploration of just some of the aspects of supporting learners with additional needs. I hope you'll be able to take some of the ideas that she talked about and use them to make your practice even more inclusive. Nicola mentioned a Twitter account when we were discussing how plain English often works better for many learners. That account is called Very British Problems, and you can find it on Twitter at SoVeryBritish, or find the link at our website, universallearning.education. You can also find Nicola herself on Twitter, at Nicola Beldum. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to Universal Learning wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you can join me for the next edition of Universal Learning. Visit our website, universallearning.education, to read transcripts of each edition and find out more about how you can put inclusion into practice for all of your learners. The music you've heard in this edition is Sonara by Blair Moon, and sound effects are by New Age Soup, both licensed under Creative Commons. Visit universallearning.education for more information.